In Revelation chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses, or reading verses 1 through 10, and <clears throat> trusting that God would be pleased to bless his word and grant us the knowledge of what is taught here. In Revelation chapter 20 and verses 1 through 10, and I saw an angel come down from heaven. Do remember that in Scripture, angel is not necessarily a description of one's nature as the spiritual angels that God created in mass, but it means a messenger. It can be applied, it is applied to uh, the pastoral ministry in the first part, in the chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And it can apply even to the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is called the messenger or the angel of the covenant. Not that he is an angel, he's not, except in the sense of being sent by the Father. So he came down from heaven. The divine messenger, he's called the messenger of the covenant in the book of Malachi, all comes through him. And so we can apply this, of course, to our Lord, but we're not going to particularly be dealing with that uh, aspect. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And uh, we do believe this is the chain of God's decree. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season and I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. These that were martyred, these who died in faith, these now reign with Christ. Isn't it interesting? This is a heavenly vision. They rule with Christ. Not an earthly scene in this verse. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. There is in Scripture, of course, regeneration, which is a resurrection. This appears to be when one dies and goes into the presence of the Lord, as in uh, verse 4. And they will, of course, when we... Uh, uh, leave the body, absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. We await for the resurrection of the body to come. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death shall have no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom 
is as uh, the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth. Notice something. It's on the breadth of the earth. And compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. The beloved city here is throughout the earth. And fire came down from God out of heaven and destroyed them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Apostle John is given prophetic visions in the book of Revelation. And these visions are given in a drama that brought to him in his inner being. And uh, though symbolic, of course, in nature, as we understand the book of Revelation, we are, of course, to make use of the clear doctrinal teaching of the New Testament, the epistles, and the Word of God. And we are, when we find figures in prophetic scripture, we are to find how those prophetic uh, figures are used in all other prophecy in order to become consistent. I know that takes a bit of work if we're interested in really in it, but and it's not the easy way, but it's the right way. So that we become clear in our understanding of a passage of Scripture. It behooves our task, it becomes us, uh, to find if there is a binding of Satan then elsewhere taught in Scripture, correct? And for what purpose? that binding of Satan takes place. And, of course, we dealt with this uh, the last time we were in this chapter as well. Can Satan be bound and yet active all at the same time? Yes, he can, as we learn this from Scripture. And uh, if before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the final judgment of the world, there will be a massive worldwide revolt against the true followers of the saints. Of course, we learn this in Scripture. And then our present passage shows that there shall be a long period, of course, of Satan's binding, not an absolute binding, not a binding for war against the saints, which constantly takes place, not a prevention from his hatred of God and man as to use every means he can to tempt to sin. It is a binding as to his ability to deceive the nations as he did before the cross, before the exaltation and present reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, before the command came to go into the, gospel, go into the world and preach the gospel, to every creature. And so his binding was from the ability to deceive the nations as he had deceived them pre-Calvary. But at the end of this period, the thousand years, by the way, again, uh, you might tell me, what's the highest number in Hebrew? One thousand. It's a multiple of ten. And ten, of course, is a number of completion, sometimes of perfection in Scripture. So that we're having something take place in the complete period that God has decreed 
but it is not limited to a literal thousand-year period. We are convinced then that it is a symbolic number in a symbolic passage, speaking of a long period really known only to God, and that there comes a loosing of Satan to do what he did before the incarnation, the cross, the crown, the present reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that this will take place before the second appearing of Christ and will be against the saints. And we have, of course, as we mentioned the last time in Matthew chapter 12, I will look there again, Matthew chapter 12, and verses 28 and 29, we have the, the strong man who has been bound by the stronger, and he could no longer keep his possessions. There's going to be a spoil. They're going to be taken from him. There's going to be a war. And he is going to have to give up those things he held. So in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 28 and 29, the Lord Jesus Christ says, But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. That's very important because that teaches us that the kingdom of God is not going to come with bombs and nations against nation. It comes by the overthrow of demonic powers. It comes by the overthrow of the devil and his legions. If I cast out devils or demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else... How can one enter into a strong man's house? And who's the strong man here? The devil. And spoil his goods. What does that mean? Take the things he possessed. Except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. So have a binding of Satan. Satan would be bound by the cross. And by the sovereign decree of God. And by the preaching of Christ. Of Christ crucified. And risen again. And by the power of the spirit of Christ. And by this. Every soul. Given Christ to redeem. Out of every nation. Would come to hear his gospel. And come to repentance. Coming to know him. So. When the Lord Jesus faces the cross in John chapter 12 in verses 31 and 32, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. It says in our authorized version, all men, but men is italicized. Which means not in the original. He'll draw all that the Father gave him. Out of every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue on the face of the earth. This is... Uh, the triumph over Satan, the spoiling of Satan's house because he is bound and it comes by the cross. And that's, of course, confirmed by Paul also in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So that uh, demonic powers are bound by Christ so that they cannot prevent, of course, the going forth of the gospel. And uh, this deception will be lifted from all who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is biblical teaching. This is the only biblical teaching. It puts the millennium 
of chapter 20 here, squarely between the first and the second appearings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, uh, not to say that all who die in the Lord do not reign with Christ, but rather it was to the comfort of those who watched their beloved brethren die for their faith and to strengthen and give courage to those who must yet seal their testimony with their own blood, the Lord shows to John and to us uh, that those who do so are not defeated. They now reign with Christ. They've gained the triumph. They reign, and where the thousand years is, millennia, uh, is mentioned, it's a heavenly scene. They reign with the Lord during this period. But our concern will be with the little season. In the little season, when Satan is again loosed and he brings a massive worldwide assault against the saints just before the coming of the Lord to final judgment. And so, blessed and blessed forever shall be those who overcome the fury of the adversary who unashamedly confess that they belong to Christ alone, that he is Lord alone, when to do so cost everything. There are those dying for their faith now in Christ, in this world. We know not what shall be or how far ahead in the future, but on the horizon appears that it is imminent that there shall be a suffering of the saints which will purge and some will maintain their testimony to death. Just as in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they, they overcame him. That is the adversary, the devil. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They continue to confess Christ no matter what threats are brought against them. And they loved not their lives unto the death. It's a solemn thing. And these shall surely shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. It's going to be a final assault of Satan. When he's loosed again, he deceives the nations. He leads a worldwide battle against the camp of the saints. His assault will fail in the final analysis. That's what we read in verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is a, a principle that must be applied to this final battle against the saints. 
and it really governs our understanding of the whole passage. Our weapons are not carnal. Our battle is not carnal. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That's a quote from Scripture. So the battle of the saints is not against flesh and blood, correct? The battle is spiritual for the saints. And the adversary is never resisted or overcome by guns and bombs. He's only effectively overcome one way. Be sober. Be vigilant. Your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist how? Steadfast in the faith. Steadfast in the faith. A faith that refuses to quit. A faith that will be there and operative no matter what comes against it. And that's the way he's overcome. And this never varying principle is kept in mind. And the scripture alone is our guide. Only the word of God. We shall have the basis of seeing this last assault as not a carnal battle but a spiritual battle. This battle, battle, as uh, said, is the final assault against the saints. Not the only assault. The final assault. We have a constant warfare. We're in a constant battle, those of us who know the Lord and are aware of the fallen world in which we live. And the pressures and the things that we face in it. We need to be on our guard continually. Not just at certain times. We're taught by our Lord to watch and be sober. To be sober, of course, we're never to in, in, in involve ourselves in alcohol and become uh, inebriated by that. It means that we're to be sober-minded. We're to have right thinking. And uh, I fear there aren't very many who have right thinking in our day. But we're taught to watch and be sober. To hold fast to our faith in God, in Christ, in his word. If we would be among the overcomers. This means that we must understand that Satan and his demonic hosts, even when bound, are still active. Still against the saints. We have that figure. Well, we'll go back to the ninth chapter. You have demonic powers that are certain times massively let loose, it seems, in the world, out of the pit. And then you have in chapter 12, as we made mention in the last message, you have the figure of the dragon with a flood coming out of his mouth significantly. This is false doctrine, endeavoring to swallow up and destroy the truth. And this flood is to destroy the woman in the wilderness, and the woman in the wilderness is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But she is protected, and the earth swallows up the water. Well, in, in the book of Revelation, you have figures. The earth speaks of the unregenerate. Just as those who are in heaven speaks of those who are regenerate, not necessarily those who've died and gone to heaven, but those who are in a heavenly state and condition. 
the earth or the earthly religions, those who aren't in Christ, swallow up this flood that comes out of the mouth of the dragon. False religion. And so, <clears throat> Satan and his demonic powers, though they're bound, they can't stop the gospel from going forth, but they're still active in this regard. The binding of Satan, which we are convinced is by the chain of God's decree, was for the purpose of preventing him from deceiving the nations pre-Calvary, before the Lord came, died, rose again, sent the gospel to the nations to accomplish God's purpose to save a vast multitude from every nation which would fulfill the promise made to Abraham. The beloved city, then, of verse 9, is not the earthly Jerusalem at all. It's Jerusalem which is above, as in Galatians 4, 26, which Paul said is the mother of us all. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is not to be found in this earth in Palestine. It's the church. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 21, it's called the bride of Christ. I saw the holy city come down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. The Lord's not going to be married to literal gold and walls. It's the glorification of the church in which God dwells forever. And uh, Zion, the city of God in Scripture, is the city in which all who are in Christ dwell. That's why Paul in Hebrews 12 says to the Hebrew Christians, Ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. How so? In coming to Christ, they come to Zion. He is our king. He's our high priest. He's the king of Salem and the king of peace. He's our Melchizedek. He's established in the heavenly Jerusalem. And there you have the principle that the new, the spirituality of the new covenant guides our understanding of the old and its figures and how we may apply them to ourselves, including the city of God. <clears throat> but the warfare against the saints and their overcoming in tribulation, sometimes very severe and only overcome by, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, speaks of the patience and the faith of the saints. This takes place throughout this post-Calvary period. And the post-Calvary period between the Lord's first and second comings is without variation in the New Testament over and over and over again called the last days or the last time. <clears throat> Satan's method of battle is and has historically been in two great areas. You can follow them in two areas. First, persecution. You can follow it from the beginning. That's what was tried first against the saints. Persecution. And this persecution was massive. But he couldn't destroy the church. He couldn't destroy the saints. He could kill them. He only promoted them. They could come into great warfare and, and, and great martyrdom. They could suffer mightily and they could die. But he couldn't destroy the church. And so 
his tactic of persecution, of bringing great suffering to the people of God, turned to a second way. What was that? False doctrine. A false gospel. That's what we're dealing with John, First John. That's the great warfare the apostles had. It was the warfare over the gospel itself and what God had made known in the gospel. The distortion of the gospel is serious. It perverts and subverts the hearts of men. And so he turned it that way. That was the most massive way. That's the great flood that comes out of his mouth in Revelation chapter 12. Deception. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, I think it is, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The implication? Yes, there will come suffering, but the worst danger is from the false doctrine that subverts the souls of men. That God has a people who overcome through every pain and pressure brought against them and continue to do so through discouragements, temptations, to compromise, even when others fall away, is due to God's sustaining grace alone and shall, of course, be forever for his glory. He keeps his own. That's our hope. Not in what we're able to do, what he's able to do. He keeps his own. The kept to the the day of Jesus Christ we're taught in Scripture. So uh, we could ask, where would be the glory of God and the necessary purging and preparing of the saints to share in Christ's eternal glory if the millennium was earthly in nature, if there was no opposition that would come and uh, an opposition from spiritual powers and uh, no necessity to constantly exercise patience and tribulation by a, a self-denying faith in Christ. The battle. The battle against the spiritual powers of darkness is always there. It's always there in one form or another. The saints understand it. Those who are in Christ experience it. But at the last, after the gathering of the chosen from all nations, Satan shall again be allowed to bring a worldwide deception and his purpose to completely overcome and destroy the faith of God's people. He doesn't want you to believe. He doesn't want you to be a testimony. He doesn't want you to openly confess your faith in Christ. He doesn't want you to speak the truth to people. This will require us to consider the nature of the battle and the kind of weaponry most likely used. It's clear, too clear to be missed, even though it is missed by our literalizing friends, that the battle has no geographical boundaries. It's not a battle in Palestine. It's not one nation or nations against another. It's not Russia or China or Iran or a Muslim army, which was taught in dispensationalism still, I guess. I've been in it a long time, longer time I've been out of it than, than John probably. But anyway, 
been a long, long time. Uh, but in, in, in when I was taught that, uh, it was Russia. Russia was the problem. Russia or China. Well, we still might have a problem with China, but not here in this particular prophecy. And it was taught that it would bear down on an earthly Israel. And yet, a simple cursory reading of the passage shows it's worldwide in nature. It's a universal battle. I have to read. Verses 7 and following, When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog will deal with that soon. To gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as, as the sand of the sea, and they went out on, on the breadth of the earth encompass the camp of the saints about and the beloved city worldwide. This also shows that the camp of the saints, of course, not speaking of their in a particular location at any particular time in the world, but rather that they are scattered throughout the world. It's a symbolic drama prophetically that was given to the apostle the saints are surrounded not by being an armed camp defending against national armies with tanks and guns Gog and Magog in our passage in verse 8 is taken from Ezekiel chapter 38 it's used as a symbol of the worldwide forces Satan musters against the churches and the people of God. Gog is called in Ezekiel chapter 18, or rather 38 verse 2, where it got 18 from, in Ezekiel 38 verse 2, quote, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. You probably remember that when we were in dispensationalism. That was Moscow and Tobolsk, they said. Well, it didn't say Moscow and Tobolsk. It says Meshach and Tubal. But that's what was taught. Just taking because you have something that sounds a little bit like the word. That's a pretty flimsy way to interpret Scripture, wouldn't you think? I would certainly think so. Any good map of the world, any good map of the old world, shows that these were in Syria. These were actual places in Syria that come into play now in the book of Revelation for a specific purpose. The last real battle for the Hebrews, for the Jewish people in the old dispensation, only two, old and new, in the old dispensation, there was a massive power that came upon, uh, upon the people from a Syrian ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. That was the great opposition, the last great opposition to the people of God under the old dispensation. And they were su this was suddenly and miraculously stopped. He was miraculously destroyed. And this becomes fitting as a symbol for the final worldwide battle against Satan and his 
war against the camp of the saints. And so uh, it's interesting. I think I told you before what's very interesting is that if you take a map, it used to be in, in the back of what, you know, the Schofield Bible that popularized dispensationalism, Meshach and Tubal are in the map. In the Schofield Bible. In Syria. <laughs> That's a very interesting thing. There are, of course, developments. I don't know whether we're in the last period of human history or whether we're in the last time and when Satan is going to be unleashed again. I know there's worldwide deception. There's still, of course, the gospel going forth. And uh, uh, there's still, in that regard also, still a worldwide deception that's taking place. And uh, a lot of things that are happening in human governments that are becoming oppressive and could become extremely detrimental to the people of God uh, that's taking place. But there are also historical developments. We don't know how long this little period is. We don't, we don't comprehend it. We know one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, as in Second Peter 3, 8. So however long this season is, we really don't know this short little season that comes. But there are developments that may show that we are uh, either entering in or in this little season or at least some things that place uh, this satanic, satanic weapons in place for the little season, these things that have been brought about. We know that for long centuries the gospel made a triumphant march. We know that it was by the Spirit of God, not by human means, by the empowerment of the Spirit of God. The gospel, for long centuries, went into the world, and Satan was not able to suppress and stop the outward march or the onward march of the soldier of the, of the cross who were armed with nothing but the Word of God. With the Word of God with the gospel of the Son of God. Neither fire, nor sword, nor lions could stop those whose lives were transformed, indeed, who were truly no longer their own, but belonged to him who died for them and rose again, but only brought about the further spread of the message of God's grace, of the gospel, to the world. So... <clears throat> Persecution couldn't stop them. It only purged. It only purged away the faults. And the true became stronger. So Satan's tactics changed. He raised up a flood of heretics, as we know. He endeavored to destroy the gospel by subversion. He even brought about a false church a false church that claimed to be the very bride of Christ, but was in reality a harlot. That was his masterpiece. 
really a harlot, bearing his name, but clothed in the old pagan idolatry and its priestcraft, the worship of saints and angels, ceremonies, incantations, and elaborate outward forms and buildings. There came the harlot, bearing the name of Christ, claiming to be his bride, but a harlot. Still, the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He had a people still who kept his word, did not deny his name, confessed him, did not stop confessing him, and some still sealing their testimony with their own blood. In the 16th century, the Reformation came into being. And <clears throat> its great triumphs. But it moved under intense opposition at times. And yet for four centuries, for four long centuries, the Western world was conquered by the word of God and by the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that it looked like the whole world was going to be converted at times. You've no marvel how um, post-millennialism could have arisen. It looked like everybody was going to be Christianized at the time. Idolatry fell. Paganism's gods were toppled. Never again to rear their heads in any significant way. The prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 11 fulfilled, quote, the gods that have made that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Societies were changed. Whole societies. Laws were made based upon the moral laws of God, including this nation and its founding. Freedoms from tyrannies achieved. And men reverenced and worshipped the one true God. Nobody could have foreseen what happened in the 19th century, it gained ascendancy in the 20th century, and now even more so in the 21st. Normalized the world over. Unforeseen until its work began to infiltrate not only societies, but into the very churches of the Reformation until the very churches of the Reformation used so mightily by God for four centuries apostatized and became but a shell of their old selves. It appeared, as Bunyan thought, <clears throat> Pope and Pagan were dead. And the revival of Roman Catholicism in the 20th century, took the world quite by surprise, if you please. The Pope now is received by national governments as if he is the powerful, true head of Christianity. World over. What happened? The seminaries 
the higher institutions where uh, the preachers were supposed to be trained and educated turned to rationalism. Rationalism is the exaltation of the human mind as supreme over all things. It eventually overthrows the tenets of the gospel. It now reigns in theological institutions and in Protestant churches. And the best definition I've read of this movement is this. By rationalism, we mean that that human philosophy which denies the necessity for and the fact of a divine revelation. Rationalism takes the position that human intellect is sufficient of itself to make man the master of his own fate and his own future. The basis of man's existence, therefore, is not divine but materialistic. And the question of immortality is irrelevant. Then you have the denial of the miraculous. The denial of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The denial of the two natures of Christ in one person. The very denial of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in Protestant churches. It's incredible what's happened. <clears throat> In that reasoning, miracles could not have happened. Christ cannot be incarnate. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. Never to live again. Be the God of your own life. That's what it's all about. Make your own rules and regulations. That's why you have the rainbow flags flying all over the place in these liberal churches. That at one time, historically, were incredibly sound in the gospel at least in the carrying forth of the truth of God the old lie of the serpent in the garden has gained ascendancy but it's in a new and sophisticated way what rationalism accomplished in the world of theology the pseudo theory of evolution accomplishes in the world of science taught from grade school through university. That the universe with all of its marbles created itself. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? That God is not needed. That man has become the center of all things. So you have all these things arising. No wonder that laws now where Christian morality once ruled, including our nation, are changing to accept, more than accept, to promote the vilest of lifestyles. That biblical Christianity is under attack worldwide, including here in America. That the world is ready to explode in violence. I don't know about you, I've never seen a time like this. Never seen a time like it. It's incredible what's taking place. So if we're not in the little season of satanic unleashing, surely things are in place for it. Quite in place. But thanks be unto God, his fury and attempts to destroy the camp of the saints 
cannot succeed. It could very well be that you and I have the distinct privilege of standing firm with our Lord during the final defeat of the adversary. But you and I are to stand firm. And maintain our confession and overcome it by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and not love our lives unto the death.